0: Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. The battle for the White House is going down to the wire. And if you're thinking it's been a particularly long campaign, you're right. November 8th is the latest date an election can be held. So where are we with just two days to go? Martha Teichner has the big picture in our Sunday Morning cover story. Just think,
1: on Wednesday... The election will be over. I'll keep you in suspense. Or will it?
2: We're at each other's throats, and I don't see this
1: getting healed very quickly. It's been ugly. Such a nasty one. It's
3: been divisive. And
4: nasty women vote.
3: But that's nothing new. Well, you can't vote for Thomas Jefferson because he's dead.
1: Ha. Trump v. Clinton. A little context. I had this Sunday morning.
0: There's a question on Tuesday's ballot. It's all the buzz in several states, including our most populous. Barry Peterson will tell us all about it.
5: Prop 64. Recreational sense. marijuana is on the ballot in five states this Tuesday, and that has some people worried. Why in the world would we want to legalize another illicit drug? It's better for. Public- but all eyes are on California, where it may pass. I think 10, 20 years from now, we'll look back and we'll say. I'm so glad we legalized cannabis and ended prohibition. Can the rest of America be far behind? That story later on Sunday Morning.
0: Of the 43 men who have served as president so far, which one stands out as the worst ever? Moraka tells us there's a leading contender for the title.
4: In a recent poll of historians, James Buchanan topped the list ...as the worst president ever.
6: But not everyone agrees. I really think that he's in the basement, but he's he's not at the rock bottom. Yeah, like maybe second to worst. Yeah, I mean, could be the second to worst,
7: yeah.
4: He could also be the worst. Could be.
8: The portrait of James Buchanan was... done At
4: home with James Buchanan, later on Sunday morning.
0: From the worst of presidents to a legend among singer-songwriters, Paul Simon... At an age when some people are slowing down, he's tuning up, as Lee Cowan will show us.
9: If only we could all be as cool as Paul Simon at 75.
10: When you get older, you say, wow. So my whole life, really, I spent writing songs. It turns out, like, that's what I did.
9: And are you okay with that?
10: Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that, you know.
9: And so are millions of his fans. Paul Simon's next chapter, ahead on Sunday morning.
0: Aaron Moriarty introduces us to an artist who's colorful, yet conservative. Seth Doan in Rome tells us why the world is watching our election. Steve Hartman meets a family divided. And more.
11: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: The time has come this campaign season to take a look at the big picture. How do we get to where we are? And where does the country go once the dust is settled, if ever? Our cover story is reported by Martha Teichner. Looking back.
1: This should have told us what we were in for.
2: We need a leader that wrote the art of the
1: deal. No one had ever entered a presidential race quite the way Donald Trump did in June 2015. You couldn't look away. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Trump, the billionaire-turned-reality TV show celebrity... You're fired. ...was just about the last person Hillary Clinton expected to be going to the wire against...
12: I mean, really, can we just stop for a minute and reflect on the absurdity of Donald Trump finding fault with Miss Universe?
1: ...in what has become a campaign so ugly... I will tell you at the time, I'll keep you in suspense.
6: You can't polish this turd.
1: Americans just want it to be over...
13: I will totally accept the results of this
1: great and historic. So, with the end in sight, maybe. If I win. What better time to step back and consider what exactly it is we've been witnessing for the last year and a half?
12: I will be the youngest woman president in the history of the United States.
2: This country is in turmoil. It's a battle between outsiders and insiders, between elites and the people in the
1: heartland. Douglas Brinkley is a noted presidential historian. There's a kind of pitchfork mob anger going on out there. Like the Battle of the Titans. I will fight harder for you. Donald Trump.
13: Than anyone ever
1: has fought before.
12: I will do everything. And
1: Hillary Clinton.
12: Incomes rising for hardworking people. Have
1: gone at each other across an ideological chasm. I want to build the wall. We need the wall.
12: I don't want to rip families apart.
1: We
2: have some bad hombres here and we're going to get them out.
12: I don't want to see the deportation force that Donald has talked about in action. Muslims
2: have to report the problems when they see them.
12: It's also very short-sighted and even dangerous to be engaging in the kind of demagogic
1: rhetoric that Donald has about Muslims. When you look at issues versus personalities, ultimately... What's this election about?
2: 2016 is about uh, which is the worst of two evils. The lack of enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is profound.
1: Imagine Polls show that Trump and Clinton are the most work unpopular work presidential candidates guy, in polling so history. No in a campaign about run. negatives, Clinton versus stuff Trump stuff comes all. down to trust versus temperament. I will release
2: my tax returns against my lawyer's wishes when she releases her 33,000 emails that have been deleted. Nobody really knows what all these emails add up to in the end, except whenever it's raised, Hillary Clinton gets deeply defensive, and it gave a taint on her that she is a candidate that is running with the FBI in pursuit of her. People hate Donald Trump because he's prejudiced. He says bigoted remarks. He often speaks from a bully pulpit of ignorance. He degrades women.
13: Nobody has more respect for women than I do. Nobody.
12: We called her Miss Piggy. Called her Miss Housekeeping because she's a beautiful Latina.
1: How many times have you heard there's never been a campaign like this one? Well...
3: When you have an unprecedented situation where you have one candidate, Donald Trump, claiming that the other candidate should be in jail, that's actually one part of this current election that we haven't seen before.
1: Joseph Cummins has written a history of dirty tricks and cheap shots in U.S. elections.
3: A dirty election runs in our blood. This is part of being an American. I'd like to say about this election that it's really a 19th century election that's occurring in the 21st century. Consider the
1: election of 1800 when Thomas Jefferson ran against John Adams.
3: Thomas Jefferson hired a a scurrilous Scottish writer named James Callender to accuse uh, John Adams of being a hideous hermaphrodite, which has neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensitivity of a woman. John Adams and his people, for their part, were already spreading rumors that Thomas Jefferson was sleeping with slaves in Monticello, which in fact, He was. They also used one of my favorite all-time slurs in American election campaigns by simply saying, well, you can't vote for Thomas Jefferson because he's dead. And how can you vote for a dead man? I'm
13: afraid the election's going to be rigged. I have to be honest.
1: As for Donald Trump's claim that the election is
3: rigged before it actually happens. That's something that we haven't seen before in American elections.
12: There was even a time when... He didn't get an Emmy for his TV program three years in a row, and he started tweeting that the Emmys were rigged. should have gotten
3: it.: I would say that the only truly stolen rigged election in American history was 1876, which is the dirty election of all time, where you had Rutherford B. Hayes running the Republican, running against Samuel Tilden, the Democrat.: Tilden
1: was ahead. This was the post-Civil War reconstruction period. The Republicans controlled the South. So what did they do?
3: They basically telegraphed the people who counted the electoral votes in Florida and Louisiana and South Carolina, and they said, change those votes. Make those Republican votes and not Democratic votes. So someone... Literally, yes. Messed with the votes. They messed with the votes. This was the one election in American history that can be proven that was stolen.
1: And so Republican Rutherford B. Hayes became our 19th president.
3: When you talk to pollsters, people claim, oh, I hate dirty elections, it's terrible. Well, as a matter of fact, they do like dirty elections and they pay attention to dirty elections. Proof? The first Clinton-Trump debate was the most watched in TV history, with
1: 84 million viewers.
12: Donald supported the invasion of Iraq. Wrong. That is absolutely Wrong. proved over and over again.
1: Wrong. But Donald Trump never it, misses a chance have to have launch a support. full-throated attack on the media. Happening. They're not reporting it, Katie. You're not reporting it, Katie. NBC correspondent Katie Turr has been a frequent punching happened, bag. Katie even requiring Secret Service protection. Has Trump actually been treated unfairly? The media is simply an extension of Hillary Clinton's campaign. The most distinctive thing about Trump's coverage is how much there is of it. George Mason University professor Robert Lichter. His studies of media bias are often cited by conservatives.
5: Trump is outrageous.
9: He's unpredictable. Right,
13: stay on point, Donald. Stay on point.
5: All the definitions of what makes someone newsworthy.
1: No sidetracks, Donald. Nice and easy. Nice. Analysis of nearly 20,000 articles on the websites of major media outlets shows stories about Trump vastly outnumbering stories about Clinton. A Harvard University survey found that both candidates are getting mostly bad press. But Trump's is more negative, which Trump actually turns to his advantage. Donald Trump isn't just complaining about media bias because he believes it's happening. He's complaining about it because it revs up his troops. Has Donald Trump done a better job of using the media than Hillary Clinton in this campaign? Donald Trump has clearly managed to use the media better than Hillary Clinton. Except... And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. <laughs> the Access Hollywood bus video didn't roll right off Donald Trump. Neither did this. Such a nasty woman. For outraged voters, these were defining moments in his race against Hillary Clinton.
4: Nasty women
1: vote. Among Clinton supporters, it seems sexism is the elephant in the room.
12: I've been called a lot of things.
1: The constant in the decades of attacks against someone who in two days could be elected the first woman president of the United States. We are going to drain the swamp. Or the next president could be Donald Trump. The unlikely populist speaking for voters losing their grip on the American dream. Whoever wins, especially if it's close, a lot of people will go away mad.
2: I don't see this getting healed very quickly. The battle wounds of 2016 are going to be deep, and it's going to take a while for people to decompress. Then uh, we can put this national nightmare of 2016 behind us.
0: Coming up...
13: What does Buchanan get right? Not much, to tell you the truth. Worst ever?
0: Who among our presidents deserves the dubious distinction of being called worst ever? Morocco tells us that of all the possibilities, there's one who stands out. James Buchanan was in this
8: house. When he was notified, he won the election to the presidency.
4: Betty Nauman has been giving tours of Wheatland, the Lancaster, Pennsylvania estate of President James Buchanan, for close to 30 years.
8: The portrait of James Buchanan was done early in his campaign.
4: It's a gorgeous home with one very special amenity. It has uh, two adult seats, probably a seat for a teenager down there. That uh, Wheatland's director, Patrick uh, Clark, showed us. Oh, my God, an outhouse for five. You could yeah, have a whole cabinet meeting yeah, in the here. the family that goes together. <laughs> but it's in the proverbial toilet where historians rank our 15th president.
13: Oh, he's definitely the worst.
4: The worst ever? The worst president ever. Robert Strauss wrote a book about Buchanan. Ah, oh, here's Buchanan. He's also got a cigar box filled with presidential action figures.
13: Here's Jackson. You remember when they talked to each other? Oh, but Jackson hated Buchanan, right? Jackson hated Buchanan.
4: Of course, not everyone hated Buchanan. After all, he was elected president in 1856. But this Northern Democrat's sympathies with the slave-holding South exacerbated long-simmering tensions, setting the stage for the Civil War. Yet at Wheatland, they're not quite so hard on the guy. Where would you put James Buchanan in the ranking of the 43 men who have occupied the Oval Office? Probably 42nd.
8: He uh, had an opportunity to write a book. Don't they all write a book?
4: If Buchanan is remembered at all, it's for being the bachelor president, the only one never to marry. Let's just get this out of the way right now. Okay. What was the deal with James Buchanan? He
13: did have a bad relationship early on. His fiancée probably committed suicide
3: because
6: he was gay well maybe so there's no evidence to say that he was gay but there's no evidence to prove that he was a heterosexual either
4: but there's plenty of evidence that he knew how to throw a great party he
6: threw the best party of the
13: middle part of the 19th century the inaugural ball six thousand people show up and buchanan seemed worth celebrating Buchanan had quite a resume. The greatest of anybody who's ever run for president. He served in both houses of the Pennsylvania state legislature, served in both houses of the U.S. Congress. He was an ambassador to Russia, ambassador to Great Britain. He was also secretary of state. There were high
4: hopes at the beginning of his administration? I think so, but uh, they were dashed pretty quickly. Only two days after his inauguration, the Supreme Court handed down the infamous Dred Scott decision, allowing that escaped slaves be forcibly returned to their owners. Buchanan backed that decision. Slavery would be the country's and his undoing. He feared
6: that if you handled the issue of slavery too robustly, that it would create what he believed would be the end of the Union, secession.
4: And that's exactly what happened. After Lincoln's election, but before his inauguration, seven states seceded, while a politically paralyzed Buchanan presided. When all these states start seceding, when the country is falling apart, what is his reaction?
13: His biggest reaction is his friends are leaving him because many of his cabinet are Southerners, many of his friends are Southerners. So his biggest reaction is a personal
4: one, like, guys, I thought we were all friends. Yeah, I thought we were all friends. The ensuing Civil War would become known as Buchanan's War. What does Buchanan get right? Well, what he gets right is not much, to tell you the truth. Upon leaving Washington, it is said that Buchanan told incoming President Abraham Lincoln, Sir, if you are as happy in entering the White House as I shall feel in returning to Wheatland, you are a happy man indeed.
8: He said to friends and family alike, I could well be the last president of these United States. Now,
4: if you'll follow me. Still, at 91, Betty Nauman doesn't plan on abandoning Buchanan or his home anytime soon. I think this house keeps me young. Well, James (laughs) Buchanan did something right. (laughs)
0: Next.
11: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: Behold the Statue of Liberty by Steve Penley, an artist proud to wave the red, white, and blue, particularly the red. Here's Aaron Moriarty of 48 Hours.
14: It's probably fair to say that, these days, there may not be a lot of people who share Steve Penley's enthusiasm for politicians.
7: Oh, I love these guys. These guys are, I mean, on both sides, a lot of the guys I get to be friends with, they're great guys.
14: Penley doesn't just paint them. Politicians are also among his best customers. He estimates that his work hangs in as many as 20 congressional offices, primarily on one side of the aisle. Three pieces hang in the office of House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, a Republican from California. How do you feel about being called the Republican Party's favorite artist? It's
15: flattering.
7: I mean, it's really, flat. even in a magazine article, they write about me where they're kind of slamming me a little bit. I have to admit, it's, I, I was kind of flattered. They took the trouble to, to bash me.
14: Penley is a 52-year-old Georgia artist who makes a living painting iconic American images, both statesmen and symbols. His Statue of Liberty is his bestseller, along with George Washington, Ronald Reagan, and bottles of Coca-Cola.
7: That's America. We built this, this nation on trade. You know, and
14: this, is, this is great. There's nothing overtly partisan about Penley's work. Either Trump or Clinton. When political pollster Frank Luntz interviews voters of all stripes for CBS News, that's Clinton. Penley's work hanging in the background. And yet, it seems that people who consider themselves conservatives see something more.
5: When I see that Statue of Liberty, I see freedom in that picture.
14: Republican Congressman Lynn Westmoreland of Georgia says that this Penley painting of George Washington is speaking directly to his conservative constituency.
5: We believe in personal freedom. That's a big thing for us. We don't think the government needs to be involved in our business.
14: And you see that in his artwork? Absolutely. Let's get up on
5: it. I
9: mean, the Statue of Liberty, (laughs) that just shouts freedom. Steve is here this morning to talk
7: about. It. Nice to see you, Steve. You. you too. Thanks, Thanks for having me. having
14: me. And it doesn't hurt that Steve Penley himself oh, so frequently expresses his own conservative so viewpoint during appearances on Fox so News.
7: And I think people, yeah, feel so alienated about their country and they feel like they're alone in being patriotic.
14: Penley had once hoped to make his mark in the New York art world, but after two years at the School of Visual Arts, he left disappointed. And disillusioned.
7: And I walked into a gallery one day and there's this giant pile of dirt. I, well, I said, What is this? She said, It's an installation piece, you know, in that real snobby way that they talk to you. And so that made me think there's no place for me in the art world. I'm never going to make it. So I go, I said, Let's get out of here.
14: Penley finally found a niche by combining art with his love of history. His large paintings now sell for just under $20,000
7: this sounds really bad, it is true, I'll paint the ones that sell because I don't have, I can't be wasting a lot of time painting pictures of Benjamin
14: Harrison. Who knows who he is? And Penley is content with his work, even if his recognition as an artist never goes beyond the halls of Capitol Hill. Do you hope someday that you'll have a piece in MoMA or the Whitney Museum in New York?
7: I'd rather be rich. I'm serious. I'd rather have the money. But yes, I'd like it. Of course I'd like it. But I don't think they're going to give me that.
0: No lifetime limits, which, you know, is a big Still to deal. come, on the lighter side.
11: And uh, number three.
0: <laughs> and later. I stepped
10: outside my backstage door to breathe a song.
0: Music legend, Paul Simon. Well, let's get to what's obviously the big story of the week. Please be his taxes. Please be as taxes. Please be his taxes.
12: <laughs> Secretary Clinton's emails. Okay.
0: Sunday morning goes to the polls. The election edition. Here again is Jane Pauley. Saturday Night Live got in its final pokes at campaign 2016 last night. A campaign Lee Cowan reminds us that's given humorists and voters plenty of comic relief.
9: It's been such a head-scratcher of an election. The late show's Stephen Colbert thought he better protect himself. Doctor says I gotta wear this till the election's over so so I don't claw my eyes out. Bingo. How many of us feel the same way? Trump sues so many people, he's probably got platinum medallion status at the courthouse. Instead of being the nation's nightlights, late-night comedy the shows have become more like release
15: th- valves. Which is why Hillary has to own all the nasty things the haters say and run as the notorious HRC. <laughs> if we weren't laughing, we might be crying. We've never had a, a major party uh,
16: female candidate before.
15: Which is, what's one of the things that's extraordinary is that gets totally swamped under the pile of, you know, orange shag carpeting that is Donald Trump.
9: <laughs> Colbert doesn't see his humor as piling on Donald Trump. He sees it as truth-telling.
15: He sounds on the campaign trail as much like he's uh, like a mobster. And, and, you know, I'm in shipping. There's a nice democracy you got here. I'd hate to see something happen to it. Okay, maybe I'll concede on election day. Maybe I won't. Okay,
16: have a good time. That's
9: all right. Thank you so much. Even John Stewart couldn't resist coming out of retirement to sit in for Colbert one night.
13: I thought Donald Trump was going to speak. Ivanka said that he was going to come out. She said he was really compassionate and generous. Uh, But then this angry groundhog
9: came out. uh... Stewart led the fake news movement that blended laugh-out-loud one-liners with news analysis.
0: Warning, you're going to hear the P word, and trust me, that word isn't presidential.
9: Samantha Bee and John Oliver, both Daily Show alums, continue that tradition. Donald Trump views the truth like this Lima views the Supreme Court vacancy. I don't care about that in any way. Please f*** off, I have a banana. To diffuse it all, the candidates themselves have tried getting in on the jokes. What's the best way to reach you? Email. Hillary Clinton appeared with Zach Galifianakis on Funnier Dies Between Two Ferns.
6: What happens if you become pregnant?
9: Are we going to be stuck with Tim Kaine for nine months? How does this work?
12: I-, I could send you some pamphlets that might help you understand.
9: Donald Trump made fun of himself too on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon.
13: Me interviewing me, that's what I call a great idea. Of course, it's a great idea. We
15: thought of it. I am winning in every single poll taken outside of a Cracker Barrel. But then came Alec Baldwin's
9: Trump on Saturday Night Live.
15: In the media every day, I turn on the news, and all of the newscasters are making me look so bad. And how are we doing that? By taking all of the things I say and all of the things I do, and putting them on TV.
9: That sent the Donald straight to his Twitter account. Alec Baldwin portrayal stinks, he wrote. Media rigging election. He may actually have a bit of a point. There is a humor bias, turns out. Studies have proven it. Among a survey of four late-night shows, George Mason University found Donald Trump was the subject of 79% of the jabs, compared to just 21% for Hillary Clinton. But that
6: 21% can still stick. If only there was some way we could get a glimpse into the private
16: side of Hillary Clinton. I don't know, read her emails or something. <laughs> Clinton's third day off the campaign trail since 1953.
10: It starts off in a napkin, on a cocktail napkin. Just the idea. Just the idea.
9: But not everyone with a political funny bone is a hardcore liberal.
10: I am a member of the smallest minority in America, a conservative journalist. We are outnumbered about 100, and one, 100 to 1, and I think uh, I just have to be that much more obnoxious to make up for it.
9: <laughs> Michael Ramirez is a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist. Lampooning Secretary Clinton's renewed email investigation, you'd think it would be an absolute delight, but...
7: As soon as Anthony Weiner approached on the, uh, on the uh, landscape, Believe me,
10: 50 ideas that I cannot draw immediately came to mind.
6: (laughs) It's all so absurd, some humorists aren't quite
9: sure what to make of it.
6: It's a role reversal where the the politician is being the clown, and we're the ones folding our hands saying, this is unacceptable, sir. You cannot do this.
9: (laughs) Andy Borowitz writes the New Yorker's Borowitz Report, a parody of daily news that boasts headlines like these.
6: People are so distraught and so upset about where our country is that I've never seen this kind of visceral reaction where people will actually come up to me and say, thank God for comedy right now because it's the only thing that's getting me through.
9: It's okay to still be chuckling as you head to the polls on Tuesday. Just don't be laughing too hard not to go at all.
10: Clinton.
0: Trump.
11: Coming up, Donald
0: Trump and Hillary Clinton. the whole world is watching.
11: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: The world is watching our presidential election, and just like our own country, holding its breath. Seth Doan has been watching the watchers. <laughs> It may
17: be America's election, but the world is watching. Hillary
1: Clinton and Donald Trump so close in the polls.
17: The presidential campaign is headline news in neighboring Mexico, where that wall, and who'd pay for it, is a regular part of the discourse. Russia has figured prominently with allegations of hacking and trying to influence the election. Some leaders have started to publicly court candidates. Israel's prime minister has kept his options open, meeting with both. While North Korea's state media indicated that country would lean Trump. Are people here paying more attention to this election than years past?
18: Yes, I think so.
17: Sarah Vareto is VP of News at Italy's Sky TG24.
18: I think in this case, with Donald Trump as a candidate... It's a huge story. It's a huge story.
17: Varetos says they're dedicating more and more airtime to the campaign. It's good TV.
18: We can't imagine two candidates that are so different, more opposed. And also because of this campaign that is dominated by scandal. Love, Trumps
17: and it's not just the personalities but the political issues that are relevant in particular she says the rise of populism and not just in the united states
18: Get out and vote. Thank you. i think that there is a part of society in us but also here in europe that is not voting for something or for somebody for a political platform but they simply are voting against against the establishment
17: Take Brexit, for example, the UK's vote to leave the European Union, or Iceland's anti-establishment Pirate Party, which tripled its parliamentary seats in a recent election. In Britain, Sky News is promoting its coverage with a spoof. That's
1: right, it's me, T I U M P, and the politics now, forget reality TV. That
17: pits the candidates against each other in a boxing ring.
0: So let's dump Trump, your campaign's more dead than the guinea pig you wear on your head.
17: Appropriate, since in real life, this match has gotten ugly. Secretary of State John Kerry acknowledged it's made it tricky to push world leaders to promote democracy. Uh,
9: there are moments
17: when it is downright embarrassing. At a rally in Iran, President Hassan Rouhani asked Iranians, is this the kind of democracy you want? In China, where the ruling Communist Party often speaks through state media, a recent Xinhua commentary noted the election revealed, quote, the defects of democracy, adding the selection of the U.S. leader has become a shouting match of insults. Still, CBS News found Chinese watching the the presidential debate at a Beijing coffee shop, live at 9 a.m. The The debates aired at 3 a.m. local time in Italy. Sarah Barreto told us Italians tuned in anyway.
18: Yeah, we have 10 times uh, the usual audience that we have during the night. Yeah, believe me.
17: People are tuning into those debates. People in each country, of course, are paying attention to the issues that'll affect them most. In Iran, it might be the future of the nuclear deal. In Mexico, issues of immigration and trade. Here in Italy, parallels have been drawn between Donald Trump and the scandal-plagued billionaire businessman and former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi. The world is watching and wondering and can barely wait for November 9th.
7: Ahead. People have strong feelings about cannabis.
0: A real grassroots campaign. It's all the buzz in five states, ballot measures that would legalize recreational marijuana use. There's strong support, but Barry Peterson has found resistance as well.
11: Welcome to Sarah.
5: Sarah is an upscale boutique in Portland, Oregon. It's not selling high-end perfume, but products that will get you high and high-end accessories to match.
11: They're pieces of art, so we have a lot of people collecting them in that way.
5: Cambria Benson, the store's marketing director, says business is brisk. Still, she says it was hard to tell her grandma that she was selling drugs.
11: And she goes, do you think there's something that can help me sleep?
5: It turns out grandma is a pretty good indicator of America's changing attitudes about marijuana use. In 1969, a Gallup poll showed 12% favored legalization. Today, it's 60%. Medical marijuana is now available in 25 states, and four states and the District of Columbia now allow sales of recreational pot.
0: Business may soon be booming in California.
5: The first state in the nation to approve medical marijuana was California in 1996. Tuesday, California is one of five states voting to legalize it for recreation. Why do you think attitudes are changing about marijuana?
7: Well, I think people have come into dispensaries like this for the
5: last 20 years in California and have had good experiences. Andrew D'Angelo is director of operations at Harborside Health Center in Oakland, one of the largest cannabis dispensaries in the nation. Cannabis culture has shown that we can cultivate, transport, and distribute cannabis in a responsible way.
7: And that's really changed the attitudes of soccer moms and mainstream people who perhaps are not
5: connected to cannabis. A poll released in California on Friday shows 57 percent in favor of legalization, a contrast to six years ago when a similar measure was voted down.
13: How do you educate an intoxicated mind? This is a bad idea for the state of California.
5: Still, across town there is impassioned opposition. From religious leaders of Oakland's African American community.
13: To say what? No! Oh, no! 64. Oh, 64. At
5: Bishop point, Ron Allen serves churches we'll across the community.
13: state. We are outspent by millions. Legalized drug dealers are going to make a bunch of money off of this.
5: And there is a lot of money in marijuana. Growing marijuana legally and illegally is a multi billion dollar business. By some estimates, pot is one of California's top cash crops. But a majority of small growers actually opposes legalization, afraid big business coming into the state will put them out of business. They even have their own lobbyist, Hezekiah Allen.
6: We're hardworking small business owners. We, we want the same things for our families and communities that every other resident of the state does.
5: He was raised working on his family's illegal pot farm. Today, he works the halls of the state capitol. How does it feel to be out in the open?
6: Oh, it feels great. feels so good, to be honest, about who you are.
5: Some marijuana advocates compare their battle to the gay rights movement as proof of how fast laws can change, especially after same-sex marriage was legalized by one Supreme Court ruling. Now they believe it's their time. When such a large, diverse community that has such economic
7: power decides that cannabis should be legal for adults over the age of 21, that sends a powerful message, not just to Washington, but to the entire world.
0: Next, when politics oh God, mom. And I'm your
7: mother
12: gets
0: personal... Hi, This bitterly fought election has provoked many a family feud. Steve Hartman has visited a house divided in the Tar Heel State.
6: The serrated edge of our election divide runs right through a townhouse in Raleigh, North Carolina. Right through the family of Joyce Woodhouse.
12: Here they are together.
6: Joyce's two sons... Brad and Dallas grew up side by side. You know Dallas, your mom is on Medicare, Brad. But wound up Dallas, on opposite Dallas sides not, of a split screen. And the reality is Dallas you know, is executive director of the North Carolina, North Carolina, Carolina Republican it, Party, while Brad runs it, a pro-Clinton super PAC. What, what she was saying. Perhaps you've seen them before, biting each or other's to head to off on cable news channels. or taking phone calls on C-SPAN. I got a minute here. One from a very familiar voice.
12: you're right. I'm from down south. Oh God mom And I disagree that all families are like ours.
6: You must have raised them differently.
12: I rocked them in the same rocking chair.
6: Or maybe you rocked one on your right side and one on your left <laughs> must, side.
12: Must have been. Oh, Shut yes. up.
6: Their relationship is such a circus. Someone once did a whole documentary about it.
9: Oh, Dallas.
6: At least in the film, you could tell much of their banter was good natured. Oh, well, you can pull her hair. But Stop. this was all shot before Trump now. versus Clinton. Hi, hey, buddy. You know, it's a girl, right?
12: Yeah, whatever. I'm used to them getting angry and debating, but this has been the most difficult election. It was the first time that I had just um, got very sad about it.
6: This past summer, as the election boiled, Joyce says her sons stopped talking to each other altogether. I
12: cried a lot.
6: And for too many Americans... I did. This is what our election has come to. It has driven us apart and muddled our minds. Today, we may think we hate the other side. But the fact is, more often than not, we actually love a lot of those people. In some cases, with all our hearts. But here's the good news. The brothers are talking again.
12: I pray that all families can come together and um, love each other and realize that family is the most important.
6: I think we can all vote for that. I'm just
10: sort of dragging along this big bag of sounds that I've been collecting.
0: Paul Simon is just ahead.
11: And then we're on the trail.
13: A lot of people have no idea where this place is.
11: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play It at play.it.
10: It. took me four days to get from Saginaw. And I've come to look for America.
0: Simon and Garfunkel singing "America" in New York Central Park in the summer of 1981. Fast forward to this past summer when Paul Simon released a new album to wide acclaim. He's a music legend, but hardly a complacent one. Here again is Lee Cowan.
9: To watch Paul Simon rehearse is to watch a big band leader in action. You don't have to stay Dwayne Eddie the
10: whole time. Okay.
9: He has some of the best musicians in the world at his fingertips. And, when it's time to play... ...they create a sound that is uniquely
10: his. My music is containing more and more elements from... I'm just sort of dragging along this big bag of sounds that I've been collecting.
9: Sounds and not just the silent ones have always spoken to Paul Simon.
10: These are Vietnamese. They go...
9: He has shelves full of exotic instruments in his studio at his home in the Connecticut countryside.
10: I use it like this, as like a tch sound. Each one of them an auditory muse. I always called it a twanger, but it turns out it's. <laughs> Turns out it's from, uh, I think, uh, India, and it's called a uh, Gopichad.
9: You'll hear it very clearly on the first song off Simon's 13th solo studio album. He calls it The Werewolf.
10: And like when I heard it, it sounded like The werewolves. The Werewolf, you know. So that's where I took the title from. Milwaukee man, had a fairly decent life. Made a fairly decent living. Had a fairly decent wife. She killed him. A uh, sushi knife. Now they're shopping for a fairly decent afterlife. Ooh.
9: At 75, his voice is as strong as ever. And with it comes lyrics only Ryman Simon could deliver.
10: The winners, the grinners with money-colored eyes They eat all the nuggets, then they order extra fries The werewolf's corn, the werewolf's corn, The werewolf's coming,
9: you know. At a time when you could be playing your greatest hits, you could be not worried about sort of exploring new things, and yet you still are kind of trying to push the envelope.
10: I'm not trying to push an envelope. I have no agenda other than to follow what my ear tells me is interesting. A lot of trial and error. It's very much trial and error, and I have, uh, I've learned to have a lot of patience with, with the errors. There's <laughs> a, a lot of errors. <laughs> Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again.
9: He's been at this songwriting business a long time, since he was 13 teaming up with his childhood friend, Art Garfunkel.
10: And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound
9: of silence. As a team, they wrote anthems for a generation with lyrics that seemed wise beyond their years.
10: But for a while there... I had my finger out and the pulse of popular music ran under my finger and everything I touched became a hit. I am just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. Sometimes you get into that flow where you feel like you're plugged in and stuff is just coming through you.
9: Does one ever arrive in a flash,
10: for you? Occasionally. Mike, with what? Uh, the fastest song I that I can remember ever writing that had any length to it was "Slip Sliding Away." Slip sliding away, slip sliding away. You know, the nearer your destination, the more you slip sliding. Away. Which I wrote in about twenty minutes or a half an hour, 20 minutes. and the same is true with "Bridge Over Troubled Water." I wrote it in a night. Like a bridge over troubled water. And when I finished it, uh, I thought, "That's where'd that come from?" That's better than that's that's better than I usually write.
9: Bridge Over Troubled Water was Simon and Garfunkel's last album together. Their often rocky collaboration ended in 1970.
10: I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Simon and Garfunkel, but given the the span of years of my career, it's only a uh, it's a relatively small proportion, so
9: Does it feel like the, ancient
10: history sort of? You know, nothing feels like ancient history. It's one of the clichés of getting older. is like you remember everything as if it just happened. At the end of this field, way back there, is another path, and beyond that is another field that was also completely filled.
9: How could he forget their massive reunion in Central Park back in 1981?
10: Ladies and gentlemen, Simon and Garfunkel.
9: Half a million people. Rammed onto the lawn that night to see the duo together again.
10: Jesus loves you more than you will know. It was a totally peaceful scene and it sort of spread through the city like that. There was something there was something you know quite extraordinary about it. Art Garfunkel, however,
9: wasn't so sure.
10: We came off stage and I said to Artie, well, how do you think we did? And he he said disaster. You yes. know, you know. You know. <laughs> it was like a giant giant hit.
9: They were a hit. And so were Simon's solo. Song. He had plenty after the breakup enough to bring an even bigger crowd back to Central Park in
10: 1991.
9: nothing was quite as popular or quite as different as his South African-influenced Graceland.
10: I can call you Betty, and Betty, when you call me, you can call me out, call me out. I never really heard boundaries between music. To me, it really didn't matter where the stuff came from. It all sounded to me like something that I liked and therefore was popular music. People say she's crazy, she got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. It was the biggest learning experience of my musical life, no question about it.
9: Being a father has been his other learning experience. He has four children, and he married a musician, Edie Brickell, who has a successful career of her own. He continues his musical exploration, pushing himself and his band to play each song, old or new as if for the very first time.
10: If you're bored, you're probably not playing it well. You could be playing it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't mean you're playing it well.
9: His latest album, Stranger to Stranger, debuted at number one on the Billboard charts this summer. That's historic even for him.
10: I stepped outside backstage door to breathe a song nicotine.
9: It's proof, perhaps, that any talk of his retirement is just that, talk. That's not to say though, that he's not thinking about the future. And for Paul Simon, those thoughts, it probably won't surprise you, are often poetic.
10: What I'm thinking of is how to end things well, not just a career, but a whole thing, the whole life, you know, and if I could do it gracefully or or beautifully, well, I would be very grateful.
9: That doesn't sound like you're dwelling on it.
10: It's not my favorite go-to subject, you know. When I want to, <laughs> when I want to tear myself up. But on the other hand, it's probably worth it to be at least somewhat prepared. How to end well? How to end a song well? How to end a career well? How to end everything?
7: Oh, there's the goodies.
0: Ahead, as American as apple pie. From domestic politics to a Pacific outpost, Connor Knighton covers a lot of ground this morning.
5: Mr. Chairman Talofa, and hello world,
16: hello America. Of all of the delegations at the Republican National Convention, Only one introduced itself to the rest of America. American Samoa, and yes, that's the correct pronunciation, is an often overlooked collection of islands in the South Pacific. It's been a U.S. territory since 1900. And yet... A lot of people there have no idea uh, where this place is. Puituawa is a ranger at the National Park of American Samoa, located over 7,000 miles from our nation's capital. It's the only U.S. soil south of the equator, home to tropical fruit bats and colorful crabs. The pristine coral reefs here are some of the best in the world. The island's remoteness has also helped preserve its way of life.
5: The most important thing is our culture. We also
16: preserve our culture here. Samoan culture combines ancient traditions, like cooking in an umu, or earth oven, with more recent ones. The islands have been overwhelmingly Christian since the arrival of missionaries in the 1800s. In the capital city of Pongo Pongo, you pay for the fresh coconuts in dollars. The American flag is everywhere. It's the preferred decoration on family-run shuttle buses. In fact, the close to 55,000 people who live here may be the most patriotic in the entire country.
5: American Samoa, we're per capita. More of our sons and daughters proudly wear the uniform of the U.S. Armed Forces than any other state
15: or territory.
16: The military has a big presence here. But despite participating in the primary process, American Samoa won't be choosing the next commander in chief. Just like the people of Puerto Rico and Guam, residents of American Samoa don't get any electoral votes. All we do now is just to pray for a good leader to, to, to rise up and uh, to make a difference. Peter Talivaa was born in the small village of Alnuu, where he still lives today. And like most everyone else here, not only has he never voted for president, he's also not a U.S. citizen. The people of American Samoa are considered U.S. nationals.
15: You're born owing allegiance to the United States, but you're not a citizen. America doesn't owe its allegiance back.
16: While the other major territories have achieved citizenship by birth through acts of Congress, it never happened in American Samoa. Last year, attorney Charles Voa Ilima and his colleagues filed a lawsuit arguing that the 14th Amendment, which guarantees citizenship to those born on U.S. soil, should apply to the territories. They
15: have been raised in an American system, and they have served the American uh, government. There is no reason why they should not be citizens because they are on sovereign U.S. soil. Just
16: let us be United States citizens. One of the plaintiffs in the case was Phanua Tanu Mamea, a decorated Vietnam veteran. I am being discriminated against.
15: I cannot be a United States citizen.
16: If nationals move off island, to say California, they still can't vote or hold certain jobs unless they pay a fee and apply for citizenship.
15: If you are a citizen by birth, you could go to any state and establish residency there and immediately be a U.S. citizen
16: for voting purposes in that state. Can't do that in here in American Samoa. For Mamea, it's also a matter of personal pride. I feel I don't belong. Really? In June, the Supreme Court declined to hear Mamea's case. He's currently exploring other options but it's worth noting that not everyone here wants to be a U.S. citizen. I would say I'm pretty much good the way I am. You're fine with being a national? I'm fine being a national. The laid-back simplicity of life here stands in contrast to the extremely complicated system of local and national laws that govern a place like this. It's a system that's on the brink of change. The federal government doesn't even own this parkland. It's leased from the local villages. Which means that, when the lease runs out in 22 years, the future of this pocket of green in the distant Pacific is as uncertain as the legal status of its people.
0: Is this year's presidential campaign the worst ever? The polling says yes, and our Bob Schieffer agrees.
15: My mother always said, go vote. It makes you feel big and strong. But when I cast my absentee ballot this year, I didn't feel big or strong. I felt anxious and worried. It's not enough to say this was the worst campaign of my lifetime. This will be one of those examples we'll use to rate future campaigns, the way we judge disasters and scandals, as in the worst scandal since Watergate or the worst hurricane since Katrina.
0: Shocking, isn't it?
15: Our campaigns are more than just the process where we select candidates. They should also enlighten us, help us to understand problems and debate solutions. This time, there was none of that.
12: You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables.
15: This campaign left an unsavory stain on everyone and everything it touched, including the process itself.
2: Folks, it's a rigged system, and it's a rigged election, believe me.
15: Political discourse ranged from allegations of old-fashioned corruption and character. We have learned that thousands of additional emails have been discovered on another electronic device. To depths never before plumbed, vulgar and rude discussions of subjects seldom mentioned in public.
13: He referred to my hands, if they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee
15: The recurring question was, could it get worse? And it always did. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. (laughs)
6: Whatever you want.
15: Grab them by the Our campaigns have become a multi-billion dollar industry and have made millionaires of the professional class that has grown up around them. Yet the system coughed up two candidates this year, that most Americans neither like nor trust, which raises the question, has the whole process become so money-driven, so odious, that the most qualified people want no part of it? After what we've been through this time, isn't that something we need to talk about before next time?
0: I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.